0: Hey, boys. mm <laughs> Well it looks like we have a few that survived the fourth. We have a couple that's been married eight days and here they are. How is Texas? it's actually really good. Did you buy a house there? Okay. So we saw some land. You saw some land. Lots of land in Texas to so see. Much land. So, so much land. Yeah. It's great till you live there. Every place is great until you move there. All right, well, we're just going to jump in. We're still Sermon on the Mount, and now we're moving into Chapter 7. And um, Jesus is walking us through, step by step, uh, how to pray, the necessity of forgiveness. And now he's uh, bringing us to an issue that nobody really needs training in, but a lot of people become really good at, and that's judging. On uh, our personal assessment of other people based either upon our opinion or our insecurity. And so um, probably a favorite saying for people who don't even attend church um, is judge not lest you be judged. There always seems to be this fallback that don't judge me unless you want to be judged. And, um, and so it's, it's quoted Whatever someone wants to point out someone else's sin, um, but they don't want to take responsibility for their own. And if you took this to the furthest understanding, you would think it was saying that we should never make any moral judgments upon what we see in other people. So we have to ask ourselves, is that what Jesus means when he starts talking to us about judging other people? Um, are we never to assess any type of moral judgment on somebody and whether they're right or whether they're wrong. And um, if we see wrong in someone, but others don't perceive it as wrong, and believe me, you probably all recognize this, we're living in a day and age where black is white and white is black and where wrong is now right and right is now wrong, especially if you're righteous. Uh, The assessment of righteousness does not have a very good view uh, in the realm of darkness. And so the question becomes, do we have a right when we see a moral wrong in someone's life to point it out? Or are we to remain silent? And um, so the truth is, I believe that Jesus's words here are often misused and misapplied simply because people don't understand the whole premise of what Jesus is talking about when he talks about not judging others. Um, And so the temptation in this, when you read it, the temptation is to immediately jump to a conclusion that we are to forbid all judgment, that there shouldn't be any judgment of anybody for anything. This is what Jesus says in verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 7. Judge not that you be not judged, For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So if you would read commentaries on this, there are pretty much three different views on what theologians think Jesus was saying here. And if if you read these commentaries, um, you can see the premise is based upon their view of Jesus um their view of what truly is righteousness, their view of what is acceptable and not acceptable and we do know in the body of Christ we live in an era where um, um, abused grace has become more the norm than the exception. So these three views are this. Number one view number one is that Jesus is teaching us to judge behavior and not motivation. In other words, the what they're doing and not the why they're doing it. View number two is this, that we shouldn't judge if a person is really saved. In other words, um, Jesus alone is in charge of all eternal judgment, and that's what Jesus says in the book of John. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So are those who would say, if you're saved, it's not my place to judge you. Jesus will judge you later. Go ahead, live your life. The third view is this, is Jesus is talking about our behavior as we profess to be followers of him. Um, And I believe this is the view that best fits what Jesus is talking about. In in other words, um, the same way we treat others is how we will be treated. Jesus, remember, he will say later, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, what we call the golden rule. Jesus didn't call it the golden rule. We call it the golden rule. But, but to treat others in the manner in which you want to be treated, to act toward others the way you'd want them to act towards you. And so um, that's why Jesus says here, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So to whatever magnitude or level of judgment you're assessing towards someone, Jesus says a day will come when that same measurement that you used will be used against you. And so, if this is what Jesus meant, then how are we to handle judgment? How are we to handle the assessment of someone else's life who is part of kingdom, who's part of community, who, who lives and works and fellowships among us? Do we have a right to say anything? How far do we go? How far don't we go? And so, um Does this mean that we remain silent when we see someone overtaken in a fault? Um, What do we do with those who bring reproach upon the name of Jesus? In other words, those who say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I love Jesus, but I love drugs. So yes, I am a Christian this week. First words out of his mouth. I love Jesus, but I love drugs. So yes, I am a Christian, but I do drugs. And so there's kind of a. A balance there. I had to ask him, okay, so what is your definition of a Christian? Tell me how you understand what a Christian is and how this is acceptable to say to people, I'm a Christian, but I like drugs. Um, the, the two seem incoherent. And so that brings, to me, that brings reproach upon the name of Christ. That, yes, I love him, but I can do what I want to do because he's going to forgive me. And how do we respond to those who blatantly teach error? Those who take the word of God, those who take cults, who take the word of God, and twist scripture to be used in a manner that best fits into their lifestyle and their assessment. So we need to realize that Jesus didn't rule out all forms of judgment. He's not saying here we're never, ever, ever supposed to judge. He's saying just understand this. That when you judge, whatever the measurement is you use to judge people, the same measurement would be used toward you. And so, um, so there has to be, he's, first of all, he's speaking in an immediate context. He's talking about the life people are living now. What are the fruits? What are the manifestations of righteousness or unrighteousness in their life? And how do we approach that? How do we approach someone who says they're righteous, but we can see that they are outwardly living a life that contradicts who they say they are? Um, you know, Matthew 7, 6 implies the judgment, um, which we'll get to in a, mem- in a moment. We're supposed to make judgments toward those who are dogs and those who are hogs. He says, you know, um, he, he goes on and says, you know don't don't teach uh, to those who are dogs and don't cast your pearl before swine so he's telling us there has to be some sort of assessment for us to be able to determine who the dogs are and who the hogs are um, to not to not be able to waste our time with that so how how else can we know what not to to give that which is holy to dogs. And how else can we know not to cast our pearls before swine unless we are able to assess that someone falls into one of these two categories. But we're told to judge the fruits of teachers. In other words, you know, Jesus says later in Matthew 7, he says, you will know them by their fruits. So we are to assess the fruits of someone's life, particularly those who take on the responsibility of teaching, those take upon the responsibility of rightly dividing the word of God and speaking it into people's lives and taking responsibility, Jesus goes on to say, look it, you're better off putting a millstone around your neck and throwing yourself in the, in the sea than to take one of my little ones and mislead them. And so I've heard it said also that um, there are times when people become very judgmental of others and they say, I'm not judging them. I'm just examining their fruits. Well, that's kind of a a cop-out because uh, the examination of their fruits are to be measured against the fruits of the Spirit as well as the fruit of your own life. And so there is necessary judgment. There is time where we as a community of faith must pass, for no better word, or, or assess judgment on people's lives <clears> they <throat> contradict what Scripture says and contradicts who they say they are. Paul says it this way, and he's, he's pretty explicit in the way he says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the extortioners, or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you to not keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are on inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Paul's saying, look, there's times judgments have to be made. And when I wrote you in my previous epistle, so... In another, another writing, he had talked about, look, I don't want you fellowshipping with immoral people. I don't want you fellowshipping with people who extort other people who are covetous. But I wasn't talking about people who are not in the body of Christ. He said, if that were the case, you couldn't live in the world. In other words, you couldn't step outside your house. Because when you go to work, there are evil, there are immoral people there. When you go to the marketplace, there are moral people there. He says, what I was talking about was these types of people who have assessed themselves to be included into the body of Christ. He said, those people, not only should you not associate with them, he said, don't even eat with them. Don't. And so he's saying there are times when we have to judge. Christians have the responsibility to judge those inside the local community. We have a responsibility, not judgment in the harsh way, not to not to pronounce some sort of punishment and judgment because of what they've done. But we have the responsibility to hold people accountable. Paul says to the Corinthians to, to, to avoid people within the community of faith who are immoral, but he wasn't saying to have no contact with unbelievers. In other words, you got to go to an immoral person who doesn't know Jesus in order to present Jesus to them. You can't send them a telegram or an email. you got to have relationship with them. And so Christians are supposed to live among the people of the world without copying their behavior. And so Paul's saying, look at if there are people who are copying the behavior of the world but want to be a part of community, you have to draw a line and say no. You cannot be a part of community if the practices of your life do not reflect what the gospel of Jesus Christ presents. We're also forbidden to socialize with anyone who calls themselves Christians, but behave like unbelievers. Now, this is John writing. And in his second letter, John says this. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, and he was talking about the doctrine of love. He says, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. So Paul says those who are not able to walk in the doctrine of the gospel of the kingdom, he said, don't bring them into your home. Now when he says don't bring them into your home, he's not saying don't invite them over for dinner. I mean, my wife and I have done a lot of witnessing over the dinner table. A meal's a great place to be. But when he's saying don't receive them into your house nor greet them, He's talking about don't make them the friends that you're gonna sit down and have barbecue with every week and just live the life they live. He says you can't fellowship with them. That he says we are to put away from yourselves the evil person. This is we're to remove them from the fellowship of community. I've had to do this a few times as a pastor. In fact, we as a as a fellowship had to do something similar to this last year. We had a woman who came into our midst who, you know, declared that she had authority over me and over all the pastors in Azusa. I began to send emails out to, to all of you when I, when I followed Matthew 18. When I went to her by herself and she wouldn't listen so that I brought her before leaders, she still wouldn't listen. Then she started sending emails out to people saying, your pastor's in disobedience. He's not submitting to me. Well, we had to deal with it. We had to say, you're not welcome to be a part of this fellowship anymore. You, you, you are bringing in false teachings. Then I had to let other pastors in our community know there is a woman who thinks she has authority over you. If she shows up, she comes as, a, as, a, as a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. When she first shows up, she'll be sweet and kind, but just know she has an ulterior motive. We have that responsibility to that type of judgment in the body of Christ to keep the pureness of the gospel and the pureness of righteousness at the forefront of who we are and how we live. Excommunication was part of Jewish law. I mean, in Jewish law, they were to be removed from the city. They were made to move outside the city limits. if so someone was excommunicated from a Jewish community for living in immoral moral life. And so in the Greek, it indicates the responsibility was for the entire church to discipline the offender. That's why when we had that problem with with Esther, I sent an email to all of you. I let you all know what was going on, that this was going to have to be a a community effort that we're in agreement with. We would love her. We would pray for her. but she could not be a part of our community because she was not operating in love and according to what the word of God says. And we're taught by John, who is the apostle of love, who is talking about the doctrine of love, that we are to test spirits. John 4.1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Just because somebody comes up and says, The Lord told me. He says, Test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This requires us to make a judgment. This requires us to make a spiritual assessment of the words of somebody's life, and the measurement by which we are to assess those words are against Scripture. Scripture is our law. Scripture is our covering. Scripture is our guidance. If anyone does anything that contradicts Scripture, says anything that contradicts Scripture, or, listen, there's a, there is unbiblical and there is non-biblical. And we need to be able to assess if something may not be unbiblical, it may not be heresy, it may not contradict the Word of God, but it may not be biblical at all. Just maybe someone's opinion may not contradict, but it's still not of God. And you need the wisdom to test those spirits. And that's called judging. We have to judge that spirit. We have to judge that person and what they're saying, because if we allow them to fellowship in our community, what they say will have an effect upon the whole community. And if we allow falsehood to be the foundation upon which they have a relationship, it is going to blow up in the community. People are going to be hurt. People are going to be broken. And I have personally seen people walk away from the Lord because of the brokenness of falsehood that was allowed to be a part of community. And the only way that we can stop that is to judge it, to hold that person accountable as community. So Jesus goes on in chapter 7 here. He defines what kind of judging he's condoning. This this is the, the premise upon, what's that? Condemning. Condemning, right. Not Condemning. Thank you. So he says this. And why do you look at the speck in your brother? When you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye. And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So judging when we are blind to our own faults seems to be more the norm than the exception in the body of Christ. It's wrong to concentrate on the little misstep or misbehaving speck in our brother's eye and to ignore the unrighteousness in our own life, to ignore the beam of unrighteousness. And, and I have learned this and I'm sure you have too. People are usually most critical of those things in people's lives that they struggle with the most in their own life. In other words, the things, you know, when Paul says, why is the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things that I do, I don't want to do, everybody has that thing, those things that they struggle with. It's just a part of their personal battle. It might be gossiping. It might be gluttony. It might be lying. It might be cheating. It might be stealing, you know. And the people who have that problem seem to be the most critical of that issue in other people's lives. And Jesus is saying, why are you looking at the way that person is always exaggerating the stories, and you're not looking at your own exaggerations and your own gossip? Deal with the gossip in your own life first before you start looking at the gossip in other people's lives. And so, but we're, we're not encouraged to just judge. We're also instructed to restore. Let me, let me go back to the Esther scenario. Part of the process we went to when we finally had to say you couldn't fellowship anymore, the step before that was, sister, you have some misunderstanding of scripture. You have some misunderstanding of what the voice of the Lord sounds like. We would be happy to bring you into our community and to help you understand scripture, help you understand how the Lord speaks so that you can better operate in gifts God's given you. She didn't feel like she needed that because she already had full authority from God. So our, we, we did try a restoration process. This is what Paul says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So we don't just pass judgment and excommunicate. We we assess judgment. We confront the sin, the weakness, whatever you want to call it. But then we offer the process of restoration. You who are spiritual means this. Not that we're perfect, but that we have not fallen into that particular sin. So if somebody is presenting themselves as a prophet and they're a false prophet, we don't want another false prophet to bring correction. We want people who know the word of God, who truly have prophetic gifts, to sit down with that person and to walk them through and say this, 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 and this. So if you haven't fallen into that sin, you should be part of the process To try and restore. And he says you should do it in a spirit of gentleness. So it means that we endure um, that weakness. We we have patience. And we don't allow resentment to come in. It's kind of like teaching a baby to walk or potty training a baby. You know, there comes a moment when a child knows that, I should probably be going to the bathroom and not doing this in my pants. Um, I'm at, we're at that stage with my granddaughter right now. You know, the other day she was standing there. I said, come on, let me hold you. She goes, you, you don't want to hold me. I have a messy diaper. Okay, well, if she knew that, she she and she goes and hides now, you know, so you know she's at that place, and it's kind of like, but but we don't, we, we don't grow impatient and say, okay, that's it. You're going to wear a diaper for the rest of your life. You know, we go through the process of helping them learn how to be potty trained. We have to go through the process of taking weak, broken people who think they are spiritual when we show them that they are not to restore them to spirituality. And sometimes it's a tenuous process that requires frustration but it requires tenderness and requires patience. Paul, when he writes to Timothy, says this in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. When he's talking about taking captive, it's they've believed a lie. They're operating in the lie and they have embraced the lie's truth and now they're captivated by falsehood. And so we're to walk them through, help them come to their senses and to escape the snare they've already stepped in. Sometimes that takes a long process. That takes a long, long process. Um, I, I read a book, it's called Unveiled Grace. And um, it's written by a woman who was a professor at BYU. And she and her husband were top elders in the Mormon church. I mean, they oversaw a whole area. And so they were steeped in Mormonism. They raised their boys to be Mormons and their one daughter. And her, uh, the first son that went on a mission trip, he went to Florida. And he decided that he was going to be the greatest Mormon missionary ever, and he was going to convert a Baptist pastor and his entire church to Mormonism. Within 18 months, the pastor had led the young boy to Christ, and he had to call his parents and say, I'm coming out of Mormonism. And it's the whole story about how this one son, Ministers to his brothers and his professor at BYU and his sister, and they all come out of Mormonism. She comes out of Mormonism as a professor at BYU. The excommunication they go through, all the stuff. But, but the, the thing is, it was a process. Even after they found Christ, they were afraid to leave the Mormon church for fear of retribution in the community in which they lived. And so they had to go through a process. Of their, her husband continued. To, she wouldn't pay her tithes to the Mormon church anymore. So her husband paid her tithes and his tithes, even though they knew that Mormonism was a cult and they had embraced Christ as their Savior out of fear of retribution. And there had to be a process of their friends. They would travel completely to another town that nobody knew them just to have fellowship with Christians and then drive back to their town and live in their Mormon community. It's, it's an amazing story. I, I encourage you to read the book called Unveiled Grace. It's a great book to read. And the great thing is she walks you through all the errors of Mormonism. Walks you through. I mean, her sons would get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and their great thing to do in high school before they go to school in the morning was go to the Mormon temple and be baptized for dead people. That was their greatest joy in life, to get baptized for dead people, to be baptized in the Mormon church, then get dressed and go off to school. And so he deals with all those fallacies. But what I'm, my, my point is, when they had the revelation of Jesus Christ, they just didn't go, okay, we're not Mormons anymore. We're, we're leaving the Mormon church. Went through a whole process. She still taught at BYU until they found out she was a Christian, and then they fired her. Even though Mormons say they're Christians. Kind of an interesting scenario there. And they eventually moved out of state. They didn't live in Utah anymore. And... Um, They have a ministry now. The boys are all in Florida. They have this incredible ministry. You can go on YouTube and see the boys' testimonies. Incredible story. But so we are to judge in love. Um, Judging without mercy and without love, judging harshly, self-righteously, without mercy and love is not what Jesus is talking about here. In fact, James warned against making judgments without mercy. James 2.13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Then this incredible line, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, The harshness of judgment is no guarantee of repentance. But mercy always triumphs over the harshness of judgment. If you have ever been a parent and raised children, you know, there are incredible times when mercy has a greater effect upon your child than the punishment of judgment for what they did. In fact, I'll never forget the time my son knew he had done wrong. And as we went to have our talk, he says, Dad, could you show me mercy? How do you say no? How do you say no when your kid asks for mercy? And, uh, and it is a credible thing because now I watch as he raises his kids. He teaches them about mercy, and as young kids, there are times they say, "Dad, is this a mercy time?" So he's already walking them through it. And so, you know, um, if we make judges without showing mercy, then no mercy is going to be shown when we're judged. For just as Jesus said, we already read it. He said. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. With the same measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. So the implication is not that we should never judge, but to know we'll be judged by whatever standard we determine we're going to judge people. And so Jesus said there are times when we must make judgments. After we've corrected our own faults, where he says hypocrite, First remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to your eye, you have no right. He doesn't say, you hypocrite, you have a speck in your eye, you have no right to say anything to them. He says, correct your own fault, then in love go to them and help them correct the fault, because you will have greater empathy to know the process by which you had to remove a plank, and all they have is a speck you'll be able to walk them through because you have gone through it and you knew the struggle and the pain and all the heartbreak that came with changing, getting rid of that, that plank in your eye. So we got to remove this beam in our eye. And when we've done so, then we're able to see, to discern, and to judge. And this able, enables us to help others who overtake it in their faults. And And Paul calls it the law of Christ. This is what he says when he writes to the Church at Galatia. He says, Brethren... If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, meaning that spiritual means you have not partaken in that sin. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So judgment and restoration go hand in hand, and they're part of the law of Christ. So judgment requires discernment. We just don't go running off and saying, I'm going to look for false teachers and I'm going to call them out. And there are plenty of people on the Internet who do that. There are a lot of knuckleheads who are very judgmental and have no idea what mercy is. But judgment requires discernment. This is what Jesus says. He says, after you remove the speck from your eye, and you've gone, the beam from your arm, you've gone to your brother and helped him raise the speck. He says, remember this. Do not give what is holy to dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. So in Jewishness, there's a meaning for pigs and dogs. Jesus was not being crass and calling people dogs, and calling people pigs, um, a synonym in Jewish culture for a non-Jew, a Gentile, is a wild dog. Um, So anyone who does not accept Yahweh um, is not saved is like a wild dog. And you know, wild dogs, you can't control them. They have no control in their life. They just run wild and do whatever they want to do. So it wasn't, it was an assessment of behavior it wasn't a derogatory, Your stinky dog. And um, pigs are not kosher, you know that? Jews don't eat bacon, they don't eat ham. What's that? Uh, some do, some are vegans, and it's really sad. They don't eat pork belly or pork chops or anything. They just, they miss, they miss Peter's vision you know, when it all came down and Jesus said, have a barbecue. Um, so, um, Jesus' point is this. Don't teach what is sacred to someone who has no interest in wanting to learn how to be like Jesus. Don't, don't waste your time. In, in Mark 10, he says, you look for a man of peace and, and you go and you knock on the door and if, if there's nobody there that wants to embrace you and wants to hear what you have to say, he says, wipe the dust from your feet and move on. He says, don't even stay there long enough to let them wash your feet, which was the custom there. You come with dusty feet, the first thing the host does is he washes your feet. Jesus says, don't even stay there long enough for them to wash your feet. You dust your feet off yourself and go on to the next home. And so, um, He's he's still talking about judging others, but he's stating there are times when we are wasting our time criticizing others. There's a there's a verse in Proverbs that says the same thing. It says, "Do not speak in the hearing of gruel, for he will despise the wisdom of your words." I kind of feel like we're living in that generation right now. There are a lot of people who despise wisdom, who despise truth. Scripture calls them fools because they're foolish. They, uh, they're they embracing a lie for whatever reason they choose to do so. Some people are embracing a lie and they don't even know why they're embracing it. They're just doing it. So, the verse is not teaching to avoid discussion or confrontation. It's about having discernment about when and when not to continue the discussion on godly things because... It's about making good use of your time. Now, I'm going to tell you a little ploy I have, OK? I'm kind of ornery. When I have Mormons who come to my front door or Jehovah's Witnesses come to my front door, I draw it out as long as I can. I will argue with them. I will do everything I can just to waste their time. Because I don't want them to go to a house of somebody who doesn't know the truth. So. I'm honest about it, that's my ploy. You knock on my door, you're gonna be there for at least a half hour, 45 minutes, maybe an hour, because I'm gonna argue you into the corner. And uh, a guy who taught me that was a guy named Harold Wells, who was a part of this community for years. He would just argue him, and then when it was all done, he said, can I pray for you? And they would always say no, you know, and they'd go on their way. But that's what the enemy wants us to do. The enemy wants us to spend our time Chasing after dogs, chasing after hogs, wasting our time when there are those who truly need to hear the gospel, those who truly want to be reconciled, those who truly want to be set free from all the encumbrances of the lies that they have taken on in their lives and to walk in freedom. And the Holy Spirit will tell you. this: You don't, you know, you just have the spirit of the living God within you and he'll just say, hey, Move on. Or he'll give you words to say. He'll give you, that's why part of the the gifts of the Holy Spirit is word of wisdom, word of knowledge. The Holy Spirit will give you insight into a person's life to be able to talk about things that they think nobody knows about. And it gets their attention and they begin to realize there is a God who knows them, who loves them. And those are the type of people the Holy Spirit will give you words to speak into. But you need to know the same voice that says, hey, You're not losing a battle here. You're not a bad Christian if you just turn around and walk away and don't waste your time arguing with them. So Jesus gave specific instructions in Matthew 10. I said Mark 10. I meant Matthew 10 on how to deal this. He says, and when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city, which if you read in the Old Testament, so many people think Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because of immorality. Um, I think it's Habakkuk, I can't remember exactly what, but one of the prophets tells us that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because of their lack of hospitality. So when Jesus says, be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, he's talking in the context of hospitality here, he's not talking about sexual sin. And so, Jesus says it's going to come back on them, but don't waste your time. So, there's a kind of judgment that is forbidden by Jesus. It's self-righteous. It's hypocritical judging, which is false. That's why you need, the judgment had gone upon yourself. That's why you need to be careful when you're judging. Do not be critical of someone or something that you have not Dealt with in your own life. Deal with it in your life first. This kind of judging was also condemned by James, the brother of Jesus. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother, a brother, and judges his brother, speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's one lawgiver. Who is able to save and to destroy? Who are you to judge another? And and remember, the context here is not outside the church, it's inside the church. James says, judging a brother. He's talking about the community of Christ. So to say we should never judge is to abuse what Jesus teaches, not only here but elsewhere, because we get to Matthew 18. Well, first of all, when evidence confirms that a transgression has occurred, Aim for restoration. I've already said that. But Paul says, 2 Corinthians thirteen eleven: be complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. That is that is how judgment, that is supposed to be the outcome and the fruit of judgment. That when we judge in love, when we confront someone who is in sin, who is a brother, the result should be that there, there should be comfort, being of one mind, there should be living in peace, and the God of love and peace would be with everybody. So our goal in confronting someone caught in sin is a process to gain back our brother and sister. We are not confronting sin to break fellowship. It's just the opposite. We are confronting sin because we want to keep fellowship, and we want to keep it within the confines of righteousness. And so Jesus knew that that would be an issue in the church. He knew that that sin would be in the camp, and it was the responsibility of the camp to address the sin. And he said, here's a process. You don't have to, you know, get a firing squad and go after him. He goes, there's a step-by-step process that you do when you confront sin. And Matthew 18 says this, moreover, if your brother, so again, James talks about it, Paul talks about it, Jesus talks about it, John talks about it. We're talking about confronting sin in the life of a brother, which a brother connotates someone who is in close fellowship in community. So if we were to apply this, we'd be in the context of the Asha community, those who are part of our house churches, those who come here and fellowship regularly. If there's something going on in their life, Jesus says this, if your brother sins against you, and when he's talking about sinning against you, He's basically talking about committing sins that are not a part of your life. So if there's someone in the community who has a real problem with gossip, that's sinning against the community because it's violating scripture. But if you're a gossiper and everyone knows you're a gossiper, it's not your job to correct a gossiper. So when he says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained a brother. So that's the first process. Just go to a friend and say, hey, I, I had this happen once. There was, there was a time, and I didn't know it was happening, but um, whenever I was with my wife with this couple, we would always tell jokes back and forth, but it seemed like more often than not, Janet was the brunt of my joke. And so one night while we were at dinner, He he said, which is such a girl thing, he said, I have to go to the bathroom, come with me. Um, And so we went off to the bathroom, and he said, I don't know if you noticed this, but you make your wife the brunt of all your jokes, and I don't think it's cool. He said, I think you should check yourself before you do that. Now that's a brother, coming to a brother. So I sat and didn't do it, and that night I went home, I told my wife, I said, I never realized I was doing this, but he took me aside and told me, and if." If you feel like I've been doing that, forgive me, and I'm going to make sure I don't do it again. And to this day, I make certain. Now, this happened like 25 years ago. I make certain that she is not the brunt of my joke. Okay, and so that's what a brother does. But if he doesn't hear, take with you one or two more, but that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. In other words... My friend had come and said, you know, your wife's the, the brunt of every joke. And I said, you're crazy. I love my wife. She's not the brunt of every joke. He would get a couple other guys and they would come and say, okay, you know what Joe said to you? We've seen it as well. It, it is an issue. You, you need to deal with it. We want to help you. We love you. We want you to be a good husband. We want you to be a good pastor. We don't want you to make your wife the brunt of all your jokes. So that would be the process. Then... He says, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. So then you go before the church and you just deal with the process and say, hey, we love you. We're not here to kick you out. We're here to restore you. We're here because there's a problem here that could lead to to the end of your marriage. And if you don't correct it now, we're going to be responsible for not trying to help you make sure that your marriage stays good. And then it says... If he refuses to hear them, tell to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him to be like you, like a heathen or a tax collector. In other words, you break fellowship with them. Now, the, the Esther situation was similar that. I only had to do that one other time in ministry when, when we pastored the, the Fourscore Church. Um, and I did everything I could begging this brother to Repent. Begging him, begging him, begging him. I mean, we brought elders. Got a bunch of guys. Did everything. Finally, had to write a letter to the church and said, "This Sunday morning is going to be a tough service, but because we're going to have to ask somebody to leave our fellowship. We're giving them a chance to repent in front of you. But if they refuse, we're going to have to ask him to leave." But that's what the Bible says to do. Now, let me let me say this. He did leave. Um, we're still friends. Uh, he is a a pastor, Um, I don't know what kind of pastor he is, I don't know how good he is, but he still considers me his friend, he still considers others in the church his friend. Um, We have seen each other a few times, hugged, you know. So, to kill the relationship, we just removed a falsehood that I felt and the elders felt could harm our community. And it had already begun a process of harming. So, initiating a process of church discipline, our goal is not punitive, it's always to be redemptive. We're not trying to punish, we're trying to restore. You know, Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. And in 1 Corinthians 5, the purpose remains redemptive for the offender. And this was the story about the young man who was caught um, having an affair with his stepmother. He's called, it, it's not called stepmother, it's called his father's wife. So because it said father's wife and not your mother, the assumption was it was stepmom. And um, Paul says, look, it deliver such a one to Satan for destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, a, that is an eternal redemptive purpose to it to release them so that they can maintain their salvation even though their life on earth may be a mess. But the purpose also remains redemptive for the church. He goes on to say, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that even a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words, he said, look it, if you don't remove it, if you all know how leaven works, put a little bit of yeast in dough, Pretty soon, not just one part of the dough rises, the entire thing rises. And you pop it, it'll rise again. You pop it, it will rise again. And Jesus is saying you can't allow unleaven, can't allow leaven to remain in your midst because it will eventually affect the entire group. And so, do we judge? Yes, we do. But we judge in love according to the word of God and not according to our own weakness, but according to the glory of the Lord, with our purpose always being redemptive and not punitive. If they refuse to go through the redemptive process, it does become punitive, not because we want to assess punishment, but because we want to save a community from the harm of the leaven in the midst of community. All right? Cool. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We are grateful for the teachings of your son and actually the teachings throughout all of scripture. Um, God, we are grateful that the Holy Spirit gives us um, gifts of discernment. God, to where we are able to assess the brokenness in people's lives who call themselves your children and who do harm to the body of Christ intentionally or unintentionally that we're not only given the responsibility, but you've given us the tools and the instruction of the process to go through to point out the fault and then to restore the person. God, that is love. That is true redemption. And we pray, Father, that we will walk in that truth um, in every aspect of our life, in every relationship that we call community or family. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen you got eight minutes to spare. So that means you can talk to each other for eight minutes. (laughs) Or if you need to correct somebody, now's the time to do it. (laughs) Except me. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us one great thing about married life.